Welcome everybody, my name is Pav Bryan, I'm Performance Director and Co-Founder here at Spokes and you are listening to Bespoke, the cycling and triathlon training podcast. Now I've had the pleasure of interviewing some really incredible and inspirational people uh, in my time hosting this podcast, but today's person really is in another world. I'm joined by a world record-breaking ultra-endurance cyclist, adventurer, broadcaster, documentary maker, author, and someone who I really, really look up to, Mark Beaumont. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Pav. Thanks for the thanks for the introduction. That was quite something. <laughs> I hope I did you proud there, mate. Um, just for the people who might not have heard of Mark, Mark holds the the record for the fastest cycle ride around the globe, eighteen thousand miles in less than seventy nine days. Quite incredible there, Mark, and uh, delighted to have you with us. So, uh, before I before I do you any injustice, I'm going to hand over to you. Uh, for those people who don't know about you, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I mean, I, I started off in the adventure world by accident. By that, I mean, I was homeschooled in the Highlands of Scotland. I was, you know, access to the great outdoors from day dot. So by the time I went to school age 12, 13, I was already spending most of my life skiing, climbing, cycling, riding ponies and just in the great outdoors. So I, I never came at sport from, um, you know, a coaching club professional sort of it's only really in in the last decade that it's become what it has so fast forwards um, you know I'm now 36 years old I've spent the last 15 years doing professional expeditions always trying to do firsts and fastests they've taken me to 130 countries in that time still hold a number of ultra endurance world records including the length of Africa and the circumnavigation and I'm, I'm definitely best known for life on two wheels but um you know, I've never seen myself exclusively as a bike rider. You know, I'm a passionate skier, climber. Um, I enjoy my running, open water swimming. Uh, you know, any type of endurance, and especially if it's got an, adve- an adventure element, has always been um, my main interest. So, so tell me a little bit, Mark, about where this all came from. I mean, you briefly mentioned uh, this has been for me at a young age, but just detail this journey for us, please. Well, I mean... Um, when I was 12 years old, I, I read in the local newspaper for me in Scotland about somebody who had cycled Land's End John O'Groats. So for your UK listeners, that'll be very familiar. That's the, the, the classic end-to-end cycle. It's about 1,000 miles. And um, it's really the big box to tick if you enjoy your endurance miles in the UK. But I had no idea how far that was or what would uh, be involved. So I took it quite naively to my parents and I said, can I do this? And they said, well, no, because you've not really cycled off the farm before. You can imagine as an 11, 12-year-old kid. So that's kind of where it started. Thankfully, they didn't say, no, don't be stupid. They just said, no, try something smaller first. So I, I got on my bike with a friend and we cycled across Scotland. It was about 145 miles. And everything about it, you know, the planning, the prep, the ride itself, getting our picture in the paper afterwards was a complete buzz. You can imagine as a kid. And that just grew. So when I was 15, I did my first thousand mile ride, my first solo ride. Um, By the time I was 18 and leaving school, I was crisscrossing Europe and Scandinavia doing sort of two, three thousand mile rides. And then I graduated as a 23 year old um, thinking I would go into finance, but equally with these big ambitions in the adventure world. And I thought, look, I've got nothing to lose. Um, I'm in student debt. I'm off to get a graduate job, you know what's the worst that can happen? And I thought, well, if I've only got one chance, let's go big. So I thought I'll cycle around the world. 
not that it would be the start of a career. I had no reference point for how it could be. I just sort of thought, look, let's let's go on the biggest bike ride I can imagine, and then I'll go back and get the job I'm meant to get. And that just grew arms and legs. So that original pedal around the planet, an 18,000-mile race, you know, I thought I was being really ambitious then. I was riding 100 miles a day for half a year, so the classic century. And back then, you know, that broke the record, and I made a very successful BBC documentary series and wrote a book, and that really launched my career. I had no idea that it would become what it has, but um, that was that was the humble beginnings. Fantastic. Uh, there's, I've, I've listened to that and I'm really smiling because you, you talk so calmly about just going out on a, a like on a thousand mile ride. It's brilliant. <laughs> Most people <laughs> listening to this are probably just like, oh, when's my next century? I mean, that's still I mean, that's a great task for, for people, the modern, the modern man. Uh, a century is a, is a great task, but with, for you, we're talking in the in the thousands, and obviously, uh, world cycle was uh, another level. I mean, you said you took you've done it once already, but let's talk about actually around the world in eighty days. Um, tell us, just let's just start with some of the stats. So the basic rules of the race: um, you've got to pedal eighteen thousand miles, which is about twenty nine thousand kilometers for anyone um, in metric, and um, You've got to hit two points on the opposite side of the planet. So mine were Madrid and Wellington, both times I've pedaled around the world. You've always got to go in the same direction, use the same sort of bike. So you're not allowed to switch from a time trial bike onto a road race for like like you would say on Ram or some of these other endurance races. And um, that's basically it. Like the sailing boats, you know, you can set your own route up to a point. So you're trying to find the flattest, fastest, quickest route around planet Earth. And, um, you know, first time I went, I was completely unsupported. So you can imagine your trekking style, carrying all your kit, cook stove, tent, the works, and looking for a safe place to sleep every night. So the adventure is much off the bike as on the bike. Whereas the more recent ride, 10 years on, was an absolute out-and-out race. You know, I had an incredible performance team, logistics team, media team around me, and I had one job, and that was race the bike. So the stats... For that project, which was called Around the World in 80 Days, you know, you don't need to be a PR genius to get that as a target. That's a that's a big old target. The 80 Days is a classic sort of line in the sand. Um, was 240 a day. So to break that down, you get out of your bed, out of the RV at half past three in the morning, on the bike at four, four times four hour sets. So you're riding 16 hours a day. Um, back in your scratcher, back in your bed by half 10, they get five hours sleep, back up at half three, repeat. And you've got to do that every single day for two and a half months. So you're going to average 240 a day. That is an incredible amount for, for nearly 80 days, 240 miles a day. And uh, we, we, we're obviously we're obviously going to get this recorded in 30, 40 minutes. But for, for people who are really interested in uh, learning more about this, I definitely, definitely get um, Mark's book. Uh, I just finished listening to the audio uh, audiobook version and it is, it's incredible. And uh, I, I mean, let's talk about some of the, the, the hardest elements. What, what was that? To, to detail that because it, it's really, it's not just 240 miles a day for nearly 80 days. It's there, there's so much more than that. There's, there's the risk of injury, sickness, planning and logistics going wrong. There's so many factors that you must've had to have like think about and have to build the team around. I mean, what, what were the biggest challenges? Well, I mean, the hardest part before you actually become an athlete is to get a project like this to the start line. I mean, I think there's a lot of good bike riders out there who might fancy their chances, but to build the finance, build the team, to give yourself the chance to even do something like this is hugely complicated. You've got to be a lot more than just a good bike rider. You know, it's, it's, 
it's an expensive, complicated project. You've then got to think about all the things which are happening off the bike. So the border crossings, the transit points between continents, even finding the flattest, fastest, you know, thinking about the road qualities, the, 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 the detailed wind patterns, you know, everything that's going to make you go faster and slower. The record before I went was 123 days held by a guy called Andrew Nicholson, a New Zealander. He was a, an Olympian, a retired speed skater. And um, to break a record by that margin, now, it's not an exact like for like because he had, he was unsupported for some of his route and supported for others. So obviously that degree of support makes it a much purer race. So I've always sort of said, look, this is next level. You know, at no level, at no point was this an adventure ride for me. This was this was an out and out endurance race. But still, to break the record by what was thirty seven percent was, you know, there was there, <laughs> yeah. there was no refer- there was no reference point for that. I mean, we end. Our target was 75 days riding, three days flights, two days contingency. So for every continent that we raced across, we had 12 hours contingency. I mean, your margin for error in this is tiny. So, I mean, you, you said, what, what are the hardest parts? Yeah, I could talk about the crashes on the road or the injuries or staying well and, you know, just the sheer grit involved in riding 16 hours a day for two and a half months. But, you know, a lot about it was just how to drive a project like this to the start line. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, and, and one of the things that um, that stands out for me, like you just said, is, uh, and we'll tie it into a point we're going to talk about later as well, is just how much you're beating that record by, because there's really no need for you to to try to beat it by that much until you start to think about how you actually fund this expedition or this race because you need something that is incredibly marketable and around the world in 80 days is i mean around the world in 90 days probably isn't going to pull in the sponsorship and the event partners that that around the 80 days is and i remember your audio book one of the clearest things for me is that you talk about the record being 80 days and that's just not true the record is 100 and whatever you said was the days so even if you finished in 82 days you're still going to have that world record but in your head it felt like when I was listening to your audiobook in that in your head um it, it was only going to work it was only going to be successful if you came in at those 80 days yeah it's so true and the reality is you know that wasn't a pie in the sky that wasn't just some number we plucked out the sky as some crazy target because it was a, a nice PR stunt so we basically did a bunch of testing. So if you think my researcher and logistics team were looking at all the details around, you know, what the race would be, the fastest route, and flight schedules and all that detail. And then I was doing a bunch of testing in the laboratory, in the sports lab, out on the road, trying to doing all sorts of sleep deprivation studies, ride to fail over 500 mile nonstop rides, all sorts of stuff to try and figure out what is the optimal day in terms of ride time and sleep pattern and what ultimately is sustainable. So we're doing bloods we're doing saliva samples we're standing on scales we're just making sure that whatever i do is not just a one-off effort in terms of a singular day or a week but i can actually endure this for an eighteen thousand mile race so my team got to like less than 90 days and that sort of bottom-up approach to the plan rather than taking 123 days and trying to work back from that and it was when we got to sub 90 i sort of put it back to them as a hypothesis and i said right if we're within you know, a week, eight, nine days of the 80 days. Now let's let's absolutely work on the on the details. Let's get the let's bring in the proper marginal gains theory because with typically what athletes do is they go straight to marginal gains. You know, that's such the buzzword in, in in athletics, and you do that to the distraction of actually figuring out 
before you start what you should be capable of, your skill set, your experience, your resources, and the rest of it. So, you know, if all you're ever trying to do is break somebody else's record, then you might just do that. But you're never going to create that leap. You're never going to do something significantly different from what's gone before unless you have the confidence to think, what are the big building blocks? I mean, how do we do them differently? And then once you've got them built up, you then figure out, okay, what's the details that we can get the final hours and days off this? I remember explaining to the team that if we if we messed around for five minutes every time I got off the bike, that would add a day to the world record. So yes, we could talk about aero advantage and we could talk about really detailed stuff, but like fundamentally just make sure I'm on the bike for 16 hours a day because that's what we've figured out as sustainable. And so the 80 days, yes, it was a really powerful plan to get everyone to buy into, but fundamentally it was it was born out of a ton of testing and trialing and, and, and rational, but it was a problem. And you might remember this from the book because when I was trying to sell this, even though it's a very captivating idea, the fear of failure stopped people. You know, when you say the reference point for success is 123 days, 80 days is unfounded. 80 days there is absolutely no reference for. So a number of would-be backers didn't get behind it because they said, well, if you keep that as the finishing line story, fantastic you know what an amazing story to finish with but if you claim it day one and i had it written on the bike i had it written on the shirt it was all across the media before i turned a single pedal stroke the risk of perceived failure is massive because as you say if i came home in 90 days i've smashed the record by over a month but i've failed on my own terms so that was the the dangerous game that we were playing with this one it's incredible really honestly it is and i think one of the things we're gonna talk about after after finishing uh, a few other of uh uh, the main questions is is just how people uh, I, I don't say ordinary people but people aren't who aren't going to be putting on something quite this large actually deal with the balance between how involved you are in the logistics and the preparation and planning for an effort the fundraising and then the the actual um that the actual taking part of it because i mean i i know from personal experience when when you take on too much and fundraising can become a very personal thing especially when you first start doing it you kind of get really personally attached to the amount of money or businesses and everything or the support that you get but but you're right i mean it, that there's it, it's, it's an incredible risk for for certain for some people above like your public donations of like 10 pounds here and there when you're talking yeah. about thousands and tens of thousands or even more then actually that business needs to see something very tangible in return so i mean for for the people that are listening how just how involved were you in that in the planning versus the actually just riding uh, I was hugely involved. That said, I did manage to put a fantastic team around me. Um, so I, I recruited sort of team leaders for each of the stages of the world. So that was Paris to Beijing, across Asia. Leg two was across Australia, up New Zealand. And then leg three was across North America from Alaska to Halifax. And then the final push up through Europe was stage four. So each continent had its own team leaders. They recruited their own teams. I then started out with lots of different people feeding into the performance be it everything from you know in the lab testing sports uh, physiologists to bike fitters to coaches uh, nutritionists you can imagine the amount of people feeding into that conversation and then I eventually just employed one performance manager that every conversation of performance would go through because as the athlete at the heart of it you end up a, not having the skill set to understand exactly what all these experts are telling you. 
B, they're all telling you almost too much. You need to be kept on a need-to-know basis. You need to distill everything. And C, you need to make sure that their advice is complementary. So making sure that your entire performance team works through one performance manager and that all that information is collated into a wider master plan as opposed to just having lots of experts sort of, you know, you just end up with too many chefs. So that was the way I structured it. I tried to, by the time we got to the final couple of months, step back from the coalface and just say to my team, look, right, I'm, I'm just the guy on the bike now. It's your job to get me around the world. So I tried to hand over that leadership. But, but the reality is, of course, I've built this. The one, the one element that you'll always struggle to hand over if you're living in the big expedition world is the fundraising sponsorship side because it's your profile, it's your reputation. And I've tried to employ professional fundraisers and, and you know, finance people but, you know, being completely candid, I've never found one that brings you more than they cost. And people need to look you in the eye and trust you and buy your dream. And I can hand over the logistics and the performance to my amazing team. But the thing you'll never hand over when you're taking on something on this scale is that emotional leadership. By that, I mean, if I smile, my team smiles. And if I look worried, my team look pretty worried because I'm the one that set them up to the task. And, you know, I don't have the skill set and the capacity to do everything they're doing. They're incredible. But but at the heart of it, I need to turn the pedals and get around the planet faster than anyone's ever done that before. So so that that's such a difficult equation for people to understand. And when, you know, people often say, well, why don't you just sort of step out back, be the athlete and get, get other people to organize this for you? And it just wouldn't happen. You know, I have an amazing team around. They're absolutely brilliant. But at the heart of it, you need to drive it. You need to drive it as if because it's your business, it's your enterprise, it's your passion. Absolutely, Mark. I mean, there's some great points in there. And I'd like to sort of reference your your book again. Uh, one of the things that I actually found quite shocking, but but also relatable was, and you said it just now, is that the, the fundraising um, professional. And I think I remember you saying in your book that you you hired a hired a guy who was uh, seemed very good on the face of it, and uh, and he he brought you nothing, if I remember right. Um, no no names, obviously, but um, I, I guess again that's a, that kind of risk and uh, and everything like that. But but talking about your team though, this is one thing that really really struck a chord with me is that all, all of your team they're all paid. Is that right? They were they were paid for yeah. doing this. Yeah, I mean that. That's obviously. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean that. That's a really, really incredible thing to do. I mean, I, I, I've interviewed quite a lot of uh, uh, ultra adventure cyclists, and uh, and obviously spoken and know many, many, many more. But uh, it's always been volunteers. So I, I mean. I mean, taking that back as well, I think the, one of the funniest things in your books was talking about the Russian drivers. So, I mean, w- what was it like going between? Because it's not just like lands into John O'Groats like you mean. The cultural differences are they, are, they are different, but it's it's really not quite as vast as going around the world. And I think that even like the support crew changing, but there's there's an awful lot else going on. So could, could you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, I mean, by the time it came to like the Russian drivers or the fixers through certain airports, you know, Mongolia and China and the rest of it, you know, I, I didn't know these people directly. I was trusting my teams to employ them and use the network and so forth. But there was so many gains to be made from having that local support. So, so before I answer the question about that sort of team, let me point out the obvious. A lot of people who have gone for the circumnavigation world record, how fast you can cycle around the world, have purely seen it as a bike race. So what they've done is they've looked at what's gone before, they've trained harder than they've ever trained before, they've been the best athlete they've ever been, they've stood on the start line, 
and then they've gone hell for leather and just hoped for the best, knowing that they're going to have stops, you know, maybe with Russian police or knowing that they're going to have tricky times going through transit points, knowing there's issues down the road. But it's that classic hope and wait and just so that familiarity bias of I'll focus on the bit that I'm good at, i.e. being a bike rider. So when it comes to big expeditions like this, it's actually having the ability to stand back and go, do you know what? I can make my job a hell of a lot easier as a bike rider if I think of and mitigate all the other things which are going to slow me down or cause issue or trip me up along the way. So, so it goes back to your question about team, finding those right people and paying them properly. I mean, at the end of the day, this is my job. You know, I'm a professional athlete and I have been for a long time. So I can't reasonably expect people to, um, you know, really do the heavy lifting here to do something which has never been done before. You know, we picked up the most miles ever cycled in a month and the circumnavigation world record here, the, the hours they were working, the commitment they were putting in. There was lots of people in the team that would have similar skill sets, but the dedication, the selflessness, the, the, the worth it, work ethic, the, the value I put on the people around me, I needed people to really bring their A game. So it would be completely unfair for me to say, yeah, I'm going to walk away from this with a, you know, a smash hit documentary, a book, a career, you know, the building block for something which is fundamentally important. And I've built towards for the last 25 years. And can you guys just do me a favor and help out for nothing? Of course, I'm going to pay them and I'm going to pay them properly. And because we were short on budget before we left, there was only two people in that expedition team that didn't get paid through the project. And that was myself and my mum. <laughs> I loved actually hearing about like that relationship you have with your mum and how she supports you and everything and uh, and that goes back obviously a long way um we, I'm very conscious that we've got uh, quite a bit more to fit into this podcast so what I will tell uh, all of the listeners is that um we've got two things if you do want to learn more about uh, around the world in 80 days definitely pick up a copy of Mark's book on it or audio book and uh, and also uh, we're going to be doing a, a live broadcast uh, within our spokes uh, performance training advice Facebook Facebook group so uh, search for that on Facebook we'll be having that and we'll be able to answer your questions uh, live uh, when that's uh, broadcast um, so Mark I've, uh, I've noticed uh, recently watching GCN um, that you've uh, been doing some rather interesting work and going back to the very start of bicycle racing um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that yeah, I've always had the, a fascination in the history of things the history of sport and exploration uh, you know myself and buddies have done recreations of special forces operations back in the great wars and all sorts of stuff so last year some buddies and i had a go at the oldest british cycling record which is the hour record on a penny farthing and that was set in eight uh, set in 1886 at herne hill which is an outdoor velodrome in surrey so it's in the outskirts of london um so you sort of think with 130, 140 years progress that you'll much be stronger, must you know, much be must be better, and therefore smash it out of the park. Um, so the British record stood at 21 miles, and the world record stood at um, 22 miles 150 yards, which was set in Connecticut in 1891. So we had a go last year, and I broke the British record. So that's the hour record as you know it. But this this the 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 only difference is it's paced, so you can have pace setters on the track with you, and it's a flying start, so you have four laps to get up to speed. But what was fascinating was I couldn't break the world record, so I was still half a, half a lap short. So I went 21.92, and the world is 21 miles and 150 yards. So it gave me a, a, a ton of respect for those athletes back at the start of the sport that we love. And um, 
we made a fun little film about that last year and i took that to to gcn but then we got chatting over the winter i said look that's unfinished business can we come back and have another crack at that so um we've done two things first of all the hour record by modern standards is of course very different it's a solo time trial it's indoors and it's a standing start which is quite hard to do in a penny farthing <laughs> but but we um a couple of weeks ago, we had a crack in the Derby Velodrome, which I cannot tell you. If you think you're a good bike rider, I would challenge you to take a 56-inch wheeled penny farthing, no air in your tires, around a 42 degrees bank corner. I mean, to even ride this thing on the racing line on an indoor velodrome takes some nerve. It's extraordinarily exciting. And um, to then do it for an hour and to set the inaugural indoor record by modern standards was was something we set out to do. So myself, Opie and Hank had a go. And if anyone's not seen the film, I would recommend you'd enjoy that. And then we're going to have a crack at going back in the unfinished business, what we didn't manage to do last year, which is now working together, all three of us, to break that um, that Victorian record, the one set over in Massachusetts in 1891. So that's 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 what's left. Fantastic. <laughs> I just I picture it in my head, and I know I've seen a lot of pictures. I'm good friends with uh, both Chris and Hank, and uh, I saw a lot of their stuff, and it, it looks fantastic. I honestly, everybody that's listed to this, you've got to check that out on GCN. It's it's fantastic. It's really good. But let's talk about another video uh, that you did with our man Hank. Um, 1903, wasn't it? Yeah, so that was a, a remake or, um, again, a respectful look back at the start of our sport, which was the first ever Tour de France. 1903, there was only six stages. Of course, it started in Paris, but the stages back then were much, much longer. So the route from Paris to Lyon was about 300 miles. And how very French. Back in 1903, they started at 16 minutes past three in the afternoon. I mean, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I if, if, I, if, I, if, I, if, if I was to set out on a 300-mile ride, it wouldn't be at quarter past three in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> and, and they had no, no tarmac on the roads, no lights on their bikes, or they had little oil lamps. Um, single speed. Well, back then, they'd be completely fixy. And um, so we managed to find these bikes in a museum in Tarbes, which is near Toulouse found quite a few bikes from the era from the 1900s, but very few that were actually still not just museum pieces, but were up for a 300 mile ride. So yeah, Hank and I left from and tried to recreate it, relive it. So there took me three weeks to grow the mustache, um, vintage gear, woolen jumper, flat cap, and off we went. And um, again, it gives you another level of respect for the history of the sport when you realize just how tough that was. So the guy who won back the the first stage and did the first tour Tour de France was a guy called Maurice Garand, who was originally an Italian, although they claimed him as French because he grew up in France most of his life. And um, he finished the stage about four or five hours quicker than Hank and I could. Now, considering we're doing it on modern bikes, no, sorry, on historic bikes, but on on modern roads, so not dirt roads like they were. And we had normal lights to go through the night, so we must have been quicker in the dead of night. It's just extraordinary. But what I would say as a caveat for what, how amazing and difficult that was, that Maurice Garand, who won the 1903 Tour de France, then got kicked off the 1904 for cheating, for taking a train. So the, <laughs> the, so the, the challenges that plight um, modern-day stage racing and, and the great tours is, is, not, is not a modern problem. We've, we've, we've had a bit, of, uh, a bit of fibbing and a bit of uh, cheating since the very start. 
It's incredible, isn't it, really? We've done ourselves no favours, let's be honest. Professional cycling has really made it hard for, <laughs> hard to, to look honest, doesn't it? Um, but well done, though. Seriously, I, I've watched that video. I watched that when we were um, at uh, in Selback with GCN. Hank's face for the majority of it. Um, I know he listens to the podcast, so I love you, brother. But that is that is something you've got to watch because it's, it's really out of his comfort zone, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, those saddles were 120 years old, um, but uh, he seems to have a, a, a thing with uncomfortable saddles because on the penny farthing, it nearly broke him as well. Oh, God. I mean, fantastic. I, I, do you know what? That leads us on to, uh, to our next thing, actually, because I, I've really enjoyed loving your connection with GCN because you've been with GCN for quite a while now because obviously Cy joined you for the beginning and the end of World Cycle. Um, Cy Richardson, obviously, for the listeners. And I, I, I guess there's going to be stuff coming up with them. I mean, there's obviously stuff for you uh, coming up, Mark. Can you give us a, a little look or maybe an exclusive about what is next for you? Yeah, I mean, the the GCN partnership's amazing. I mean, those guys do amazing work and their appetite to broaden their scope from, you know, road racing and their amazing how-to videos around being a better bike rider to all sorts of things around the history of the sport, the adventure side, you know, they're doing more and more great content around gravel and trekking and whatnot. So, so obviously, you know, the ad hoc videos I've done with them over the last three, four years are becoming more regular and we're doing other, other great stuff. So watch this space. We've got other really fun plans um, with the crew there. My own ambitions, um, as I say, I've pedaled around the world <laughs> twice, top to bottom a couple of times. My, my own interest now is that I sort of a bucket list of some of the world's biggest endurance races. I'd love to take part in Ram, race across America. I'd love to race Cape Epic. I'd love to... I've never really pitted myself against a field of athletes. I've always been out there pushing myself, um, you know, across these big records and these, you know, big continent-wide races. So um, I guess I'm taking the skill set that I've built over the last 20, 25 years and, and taking it into a more traditional um, racing format. Although I think for most people, they'd be coming the other way from road racing, going while well, race across America is a very long way and on the adventure end of things. For me, that's actually much shorter but, you know, huge respect for these races. It's, it's, it's super intense. I mean, you are, you're putting everything I know in these multi-month events into, say, a, an eight, nine-day race. So, um, yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to take on, in a nutshell, some of the world's biggest endurance races in the coming years. Fantastic. And yeah, uh, we're all going to be uh, watching in awe, no doubt, and uh, look forward to uh, to seeing more about that. But let's move this on because conscious of uh, of time and uh, you're obviously at an airport, Mark, so we can uh, uh, yes. help make sure you don't miss your plane. <laughs> um, for, for the listeners that are tuning in that are... Uh, doing something themselves either they're either they're just fundraising um for like a sportive or maybe they're doing something grander i mean we're not talking about anyone doing world world cycle but uh what are your best tips for uh for fundraising is there anything that you can impart that will help people get the most uh charity money for charity well, well, let's let's broaden it. Whether you're getting money for charity or you actually need funds to get your project off the ground, whatever that is, um, people tend to go to trade. By that, I mean the cycling world or you know businesses that they uh, think might have an interest, and they spend a lot of time, you know, cold calling and knocking on doors, which you know ultimately aren't you know particularly helpful. 
I always say every single sponsor I've ever had on the sponsorship side and on the core funding side has come through a direct network. Now, people often say to me, well, I don't have that network, but we all know people. And when you know people and when you talk to people, get them enthusiastic about what you're trying to do. Sell the dream. Don't sell the finance and the money and what you need. Just get people bought into the why. What are you doing and why are you doing it? And then say very simply, look, who do you know? People are very proud of who they know. People don't like giving you money, but people like sort of, you know, being connected. So it's much easier to sort of say, look, introduce me to two or three people and make sure they do that and keep widening the web, knowing that those people can come back and support you themselves. So I never, ever have a yes, no conversation about finance as in will you back me? I always say, look, buy into the ethos, buy into what we're doing, you know, get, get keen, be a part of it. This is happening. Give people the confidence that you're not waiting for people to make it happen for you. This is happening and it's something that they can be a part of. So the tone of that conversation is always hugely important. And then you just simply ask very open questions about being involved. All I would say is people need to buy into the why of what you're doing. I think people always oversell the earned media value, the branding, like the product placement, all that side of stuff. The people who really buy into what you're doing, it's the why. They want to be able to tell their business communities. They want to be able to tell their friends that they're associated with you because of what you stand for. So whether you're taking on the local century rider sportif or whether you're cycling around the world, I think it's really, really important to try and figure out sort of what are the shared values? What do you stand for and why would other people care? Because just going out and sort of saying, I'm off on a bike ride, would you, you know, finance me? whether it's for charity, it just doesn't do it for people. Whereas if people understand, you know, the shared value piece, I mean, let me give you an example. When I'm fundraising for a circumnavigation, I always say to people, look, if you just want a name on a shirt, there's plenty of football clubs out there. There's easier ways to get a brand out than me. But if you want leaps in performance, global ambition, if you want to like genuinely have a, a story with a point of difference, then, you know, let's talk because that becomes something valuable for them. And, you know, equally, if it's a charity mission, understanding why people care about the charity, if there's not a common ground there, they won't back you. You know, people come to me all the time and say, how do I get free bikes, sponsored bikes? And I say, well, you won't. You can't because bike brands get asked every single day of the week. So you're much better to go and tap up sponsors in a completely different walk of life who never get asked and then just buy the stuff you need rather than going to the trade and asking for stuff which they're not going to give you anyway. So I think it's just being a bit more original about how you ask the question about funding and, and, and never have yes, no conversations about funding. Just, just sort of get people bought into why you're doing and what you're doing and then ask them to, you know, spread the story, make introductions and you'll get it. It'll be a second, third, fourth point of contact, but you'll get what you need. That's fantastic. And do you know what? A lot of that really resonates with me because uh, I had a heck of a time trying to fundraise for my my own little uh, record that I did last year, Route 66. And uh, I think you and I, Mark, might have to have a conversation about who you can introduce me when I go back in 2020. Um, but let's, uh, let's talk about the uh, organisation of an epic event. Uh, obviously, not we're not talking about on a world scale, but maybe there's some tips that you can uh, impart to our listeners um, about not getting too bogged down in the organisation, um, ensuring that they don't get mentally burnt out before they even hit the start line, and uh, maybe something about building a team around them. So what would be your tips on that? Well, I mean, the, the mistakes I've made at lots of expeditions in the past is, as you say, getting to the start line and you're already shattered. You know, you've put so much into 
you know, the nervous energy, the sleepless nights, the long, long hours to make sure you have what you need. And then, I mean, I remember the first time I set out to cycle around the world, I barely left Paris and I was stopping for a double espresso because I was just falling asleep on the bike because I was not so knackered. So you've got to be careful of that. You know, your immune system, making sure you're well, making sure that you're really topped up on sleep, making sure that, um, you know, you know, your cortisol, your, your, your well-being is where it needs to be before the start. You know, the headspace to commit to these big races and projects is massive. So that's not easy when it means so much to you, especially if you've got, you know, skin in the game. If you're invested in it yourself, you know, it means a lot to you. I don't care. I'd say whether this is a, a local rider you're taking on the planet. It's just if it means something to you and you've worked hard towards it, making sure that you can still perform as an athlete is key. I mean, all I would say on building the performance team side, um, you know, many people listening to this podcast will have very busy work and family lives. They won't be professional athletes, but in some ways I've got the same stresses and strains because, you know, I've got two kids at home. I've got an amazing, beautiful young family and there's no, there's no um, infrastructure around the world I live. There's no lottery funding. There's no governing body. If you want to make a success in the adventure world, you've got to drive your own business. You've got to do the fundraising. You've got to build the team. So you've got to run the business and be the athlete. So I think it's very easy to start to feel sorry for yourself and think, well, you know, I'm trying to do these things. But, but I think it's useful to understand that everyone faces the same pressures. Everyone's got a busy work-life balance. And it stops you feeling sorry about that. We get to do the most extraordinary things when we get to push ourselves as athletes, get to take on our biggest dreams and really create these memories that will last a lifetime. So the mindset of enjoying what you're doing, regardless of the pressure, allows you to keep striving. It allows you to have the 5 a.m. starts and the 11 o'clock finishes. But then you do need to make sure that you can trust people around you because you simply don't have the capacity to pull off these entire projects entirely by yourself. So... And, and, and as I said before, as you start to build more people around you, whether they're whether you're only having one or two contact points a week with them or you're working with them full time, you need to be able to distill those conversations. You need to make sure that, you know, by the time you get to the race or that period of performance, you're on a need to know basis. And fundamentally, safety has to come first. You have to make sure that somebody else is calling the shots. So you're not ultimately the de facto leader on the road when you're doing something which is taking you miles out of your comfort zone. And that's the most important bit because ultimately, you know, you, you want to do these things, but you want to come back in one piece as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I completely agree on, on the safety aspect. It's, uh, uh, there's nothing, nothing going to be worse than you doing all of the hard work, planning, preparation, fundraising, and then doing something silly and getting hurt during the, the ride itself and not completing it so um thank you mark um i just guess there's one little question i've got left and that is um storytelling's a big business obviously you're into broadcasting now and uh how has that changed over the the decade that you've been doing it i mean beyond beyond recognition i don't feel that old but i'm 36 and when i first picked <laughs> up a camera and filmed a documentary i was filming on mini dv so i was shooting on reel to reel cassette i mean couriering back from you know southern iran or australia or wherever i was and just hoping it would make it back and then everything was told afterwards and then the second major expedition i went on was from alaska to tierra del fuego climbing denali and aconcagua en route so it was a nine-month exped and um you know i took this new fangled thing called twitter with me and the bbc said can you trial this and i thought it was an utter waste of time initially just <laughs> not 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 knowing what it was 
my point is everything now whether you're an amateur athlete or a professional athlete is told in real time so whether it's for your own friends and family or it's to create earned media value for sponsors or wider impact or you've got a purpose around you know charity or or another cause the 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 impact and the storytelling element is is all around us and how to manage that as an athlete is is pretty difficult because you're focusing on a core competence, which is the period of performance, completing the task, but you want to take people on the journey with you. I feel very lucky that my career has, has spanned that gap between the old school way of going out there, doing what you did, and then telling the story afterwards, and the new school way, which is real time. But you've got to be able to switch off. You've got to be able to realize that you've got to live these journeys, both in the training and the, 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 the completion for yourself before you can tell a story well. And you don't want to impact on the core purpose of what you're doing. So if at any point the storytelling starts to detract from your competence as an athlete, then you've got to have a word with yourself and you've got to have a word with your team. And you've got to reflect back to your sponsors that your obligation to them is overriding your core competence to do what's necessary. So it's all it's all in terms of priorities. You can do those things. You can take an audience, be that local or global, along with what you're doing, but never, ever compromise on the core purpose. You know, you can have great fun storytelling, but it can become a horrible stress if it takes over. Yeah, absolutely. And again, there's something there from your from your audio book that uh, that really was um, key there. And it's uh, it's just how the mood around that changes the the further or the closer rather you get to sort of day 79 and um obviously you were really grateful for all of the love and support at the roadside but that kind of was getting in the way um and then the tone at which you were doing your sort of video diary um was completely different as you were getting more and more tired and fatigued and it was uh it, it was brilliant it was a really good thing for you to do actually to put those actual snippets of your video diary the audio from that into your audio book it's a really good idea and i really enjoyed having that kind of um that input from from there so mark fantastic it's been an absolute pleasure having you on bespoke i've enjoyed it i've thoroughly enjoyed it it's uh, it's a shame we've caught up at an airport i hope the background noise of planes taking <laughs> off hasn't been too much of a distraction but oh. my life my life is on the go and uh, it's always great to just sit down and 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 chat with with somebody who who has a reference point for for what i do and what i'm passionate about so i hope your listeners you know equally enjoyed that yeah i'm sure they will mark it's been uh, i mean the airport aside it's been absolutely amazing and i haven't heard any planes but uh no honestly we appreciate your time i'm sure the listeners will um well those of you that are listening before monday the 21st that's when we're going to have mark live in our spokes performance training advice uh, facebook group join then if you if you're listening afterwards still join the group find the video we'll leave it up and uh, leave some comments we'll see if we could twist mark's arm enough to to get him to do a second either podcast or or live mark uh, it's been absolutely amazing truly i'm uh, absolutely honored that you you came on and uh, and i wish you all the best for everything that is coming up in the future thanks look forward to keeping in touch cheers my episode and my name is pav brian i'm performance director and co-founder here at spokes you've been listening to bespoke if you've enjoyed this episode please make sure you share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe thank you very much <laughs>